chapter 7 and verse 10 is an incredible statement of her love where she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. I am my beloved's. I mean, I am for him. He can find his pleasure in me. He can find his love fulfilled in me. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. She's not even in it. She's not even in the equation. It's just all about him. So her love is turning. Now we can ask, how, how is this happening? Hello, my dear listeners. I'm Joe Durso. And you are listening to That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to the proposition that all men are sinners worthy of eternal punishment, and Jesus Christ is the only one that can save. In a world where preachers have proclaimed for over a hundred years that God is love, without a little hint that he is also infinitely righteous and just, there is little room to believe that God is angry with a race of fallen and sinful men. Such a preaching and teaching have helped to harden whole societies against the accurate preaching of God's Word. You know, the sad irony of such false teaching is that it actually works to mask the love of God as found in the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a living sacrifice, a lamb rejected by both God and men rejected by God in order to appease his righteous and holy demands to love him according to his holiness and rejected by men in order to silence the truth. It is my intention that the listeners of these broadcasts will hear about the entire character of God and so not distort the message of his holy word. I seriously hope that this episode, along with others, will be a blessing to your heart and a ray of hope in your life. And now for today's episode, I've entitled Solomon's Love Song. When considering the interpretation of any book of the Bible, it's important to look at the human author. But before we consider Solomon, who is the human author of the Song of Solomon, uh, let us consider that God is the author of the Bible. All scripture, we are told in 2 Timothy 3.16, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's inspired by God, Paul wrote to Timothy. When Peter was writing his letter, he said, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So men are not allowed to interpret according to their own design and their own desire. It wasn't written that way, and neither is it meant to be interpreted that way. It's a special book. There's no book like the Bible. I mean, just just consider this for a minute. We've all gone through, I guess most of us, you know, that game where, you know, one person says something in silence and quiet and he tells another person and that person tells another person. By the time you get to 10 people and you go from one 
to the other. What did you hear? It is so mangled and so distorted by the time you get to the end. It doesn't sound like the first one at all. At least I've been in numerous ones, and, and that's the way it always works. Well, how does that, what does that mean about the Bible? Well, the Bible was written in, in three different languages over a period of 1,200 years or more by over 40 different authors. And it has one central theme. It all ties in together perfectly. And this is coming for somebody who's, who's studying it for over 46 years. Um, it, it, and, and, and many scholars who acknowledge the same truth about the Bible, which makes it a miraculous book. And I'm, we're not even talking about prophecies that come true and a dozen other things that make the Bible of rare book above all books, just that principle alone makes it a miracle book. And I want to consider that as we consider a book that is highly difficult to understand. And I say that because there are interpretations, there are, just like in every doctrine of the Bible, and they differ, men differ one from the other. I, I haven't found many that are as mangled as in my opinion, as, as this particular book. I'll leave that to you to decide. I don't know how well you're studying, those of you who are listening, this particular book, how much you've read it, what you think about it. Is, is it a sonnet? Is it a love song from Solomon? Uh, but before we get there, before we talk about that, let's understand that the Bible, from Genesis to Revelations, uh, has a narrative it has a purpose, and that purpose is a redemptive purpose. And so I want to just overview the Bible to, to give a, an, uh, a kind of an overview to see that. The Bible is the only book that begins with a perfectly believable creation story. I'm not going to take the time to go into other religions that are, are some are absolutely ludicrous in how they depict the, the world, but the Bible gives you a, a creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Where there's a creation, there has to be a creator. And concludes, though, with the redeemed entering an eternal state in a new heaven and earth. Genesis tells of the human race fallen in sin by giving in to the devil's temptations. God then chooses the man Abram, through whom he would start a new race. God's chosen race, Israel, then proclaims the folly of taking the Lord's name in vain, meaning Israel's seed now think themselves that they are gods apart from repentance and faith. What is true of Israel is now true of many quote-unquote Christians. Israel repeatedly disobeyed God's law and after 1,200 years ended up in exile for 70 years. Israel rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and was dispersed into the nations for the past 2,000 years. The prophets proclaimed Israel's unbelief and disobedience and eventual restoration. The Gospels proclaimed the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Christ. The book of Acts records the beginning of the church, replacing Israel for a time. 
The New Testament epistles warn of the impending spiritual war with the devil for truth and the glory of Christ, his kingdom, sovereignty, and love for the church. Revelation teaches God's persevering love and faithfulness to Israel and all his children. Again, there are many that would differ slightly on some of these things, but those who are born again who are regenerate part of the Reformed faith, that faith which was recaptured after 900 years of being lost under the Roman Catholic Church, uh, would agree with that account of the, of the redemptive purpose in the Bible for lost sinners. As all the Bible tells of God's redemptive story, even so does the Song of Solomon. Placed strategically at the center or heart of the Bible are five poetic books that illuminate the thinkings and the feelings that live within the heart of man or men. Job, the suffering of the righteous, Psalms, prayers of the righteous, Proverbs, wisdom of the righteous, and the folly and the fool, Ecclesiastes, Solomon's regrets. And now... Uh, the Song of Solomon fits within God's redemptive story. It therefore must be redemptive in nature. Solomon was the human author of the Song of Songs, Solomon's wise prayer, and God blessed Solomon with wisdom uh, in the story of Solomon. God warned Solomon and foretold his anger. And this is found in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 13. I'm going to read it. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Inamite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. 700 wives were for the purpose of maintaining peace. 300 concubines was for him to indulge himself in illicit sex. For when Solomon was old, in verse 4 it says, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Not wholly devoted, it was devoted. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, had done. God makes a contrast between Solomon and and David in this portion of Scripture. Verse 7, Then Solomon built a high place for Kamash, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. 
Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And that's 1 Kings 11, 1 through 13. So this is why I say with the life that is depicted in the Bible about King Solomon, who was given wisdom beyond any man, uh, who did not begin to live up to that wisdom, but actually turned away from the Lord, exactly the opposite of what he was commanded to do. Now this Solomon wrote, uh, Proverbs, he wrote Ecclesiastes, he wrote some Psalms, he also wrote the Song of Solomon. And the wisdom of God <clears throat> cannot fail, but men, by a lack of faith, can fail to live accordingly. Men are capable of saying one thing and doing another. And the one thing that our Lord, at the time that he was here, hated more than any other sin was the sin of hypocrisy. Solomon was good at building and enlarging the physical kingdom. When David became king, Israel was divided. When he left, Israel was united. When Solomon became king, Israel was united. When he left, it was divided. There's a difference in the fruit of the two men and their two prospective kingdoms. David loved the ark and God himself more than he loved himself. Solomon was a wise king, but his lustful self-love resulted in widespread idolatry. <clears throat> Solomon was not a suitable man to write a proper love sonnet to any woman. Song of Songs is an honest look at worldliness that encroaches upon the wisest and most devoted men and women. The Song of Solomon is the narrative of true love and the worldliness that threatens its existence. It is not easily understood narrative. It will test any man's resolve to allow God's word to say what it means and the interpretive skills that it takes to understand it. Please note that nowhere in scripture does it intimate that Solomon was ever a shepherd. He was the son of Bathsheba, born to king in King David's palace. As king, he would not be hard to find and always surrounded by guards. These and other facts make it very hard to believe that Solomon is just talking about himself in this song. It's a story. It's a storyline of the Song of Solomon. 
So let's look at it. <clears throat> Beginning, and I'm, I won't be able to cover the whole thing, certainly. I'm just going to hit the high part points. So first of all, there's the Shulamite's love for a shepherd. And one, two. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And then in verse 7 it says, Tell me, O you whom I love, my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? The Sulamite <clears throat> has a dilemma, though. She's faced with the dilemma in verse 4. Draw me after you and let us run together, she says in her heart to the shepherd. The king has brought me into his chamber. Then we hear the maidens speak in verse 4 and part B. The maidens of Jerusalem, they speak to the king, We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I have to, we have to, you have to understand in this storyline, the maidens love the king. Their eyes are on the king. Why? Well, the king has a lot to offer. I mean, just like any typical mother who would want her daughter to, to marry well. So women want to marry well. Uh, some women marry for love. Many, some women marry for uh, possessions. I mean, I'm not making any judgments here. This is just an objective look of, at life. Both, we can say things both good and bad of men and women. So then in verse 15 and verses surrounding that, the king, we see, can only speak about the Shulamite's physical appearance. Quote, How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. The Shulamite's heart, however, belongs to another. With the shepherd in her mind, she says in chapter 2 and verse 1, I am the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valleys. She expresses the shepherd's love for her in 2 through 4. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banquet hall, his banner over me, his love. And that's a love that she could not have received in, in that time from the king who desired her body um, but didn't really know her. In chapter 2 and chapter 7, she makes this statement, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love. Until she pleases. Do you do not awaken my love? That's her love in her heart. Until her love pleases, delights her. Until she is delighted in love. And they're pressuring her, of course, desiring her to have the king. She expresses her love and she expresses it her love towards the shepherd in chapter 2 and verse 16. This is a key verse. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies. Take special note that she says, My beloved is mine. Her beloved belongs to her. 
and I am his. She comes first, he comes second. Very key in the storyline. The question then arises, why didn't the Shulamite not tell the king right off she was not interested from the beginning? Why did she allow herself to be tortured and torn between two men? Which is thus a basic part of the storyline, this three people, king, the shepherd, and the Shulamite girl. Well, that's a good question. Uh, We might ask ourselves, why does a child of God, a person who gives their life to Christ, a person who is redeemed, a person who may come to an assurance of salvation and recognize all the promises of being adopted into the family, becoming a, a child of of, uh, of the king and all that he owns and being in his presence throughout all eternity and all of the goodness that's promised of his care and his love and the love of others in his kingdom, all of that, and still be pulled away by temptation and sin. The New Testament declares by the writing of all uh, the writers uh, of warnings about being tempted and And the power there is to overcome that temptation in Christ. If that temptation did not exist, you know, it would not have been written about. Paul desired that the Corinthians, who were a very sinful church, would be able to be presented uh, to uh, their their bridegroom as 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 a virgin, pure. And that's the desire. But the church of the New Testament is one afflicted in spiritual warfare and everything from the truth being twisted into lies uh, to giving in to sin and temptation. And so we see this Shulamite uh, in this story, a very literal story between uh, two men torn in her tossing tossing and turning in her bed in chapter 3, 1 through 4. And I read, By night on my bed I sought him, whom my soul loves, as the shepherd, I sought him, but I found him not. I said, I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the broad ways. I will seek him, whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Saw ye him whom my soul loves? It was but a little that I passed from them, when I found him whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and in the chamber of her that conceived me. So there is this tearing in the Shulamite's heart after the one who she's not with at the present. She's in Solomon's palace. Then the Shulamite adjures the maidens, to allow her the freedom to love the one that pleases her. Chapter 3 and verse 5. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose or by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up nor awake my love until it pleases. Love is in the feminine and pleases or to delight in is neutral in the Hebrew. Uh, in so there is this until I am ready, don't push me into being with the king. 
There is a continual back and forth between the king who offers her the world or worldliness while being obsessed with her physical appearance and her wanting more time to think. When she thinks, she thinks about the love of the shepherd. Chapter 5, verses 2 through 7 says, I was asleep, but my heart woke. It is the voice of my beloved that knocks, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my garment, how shall I put it on? I have washed my feet, how shall I defile them? My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my heart was moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, and my fingers with liquid myrrh, upon the handles of the bolt, opened to my beloved. But my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul had failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that go about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my mantle from me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, she says again, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick from love. It became clear that the conflict of her soul was making her sick. She was torn in her heart. She sought him and she was beaten by the guards in her heart, in her mind, in her dream. What was really beating her was her own heart. Her her dream speaks of the torment going on in her soul. Because she does not have the one she wants, she is hurt because of it. Let us understand that in the decision-making process, a work of sanctification is taking place in the Shulamite soul. Her love is changing so that she is becoming less self-centered and more unselfish in loving another. There's two verses that further this idea and that really make the story complete and see what's being done in the life of the Shulamite girl, who is representative of all Christians, all righteous people, all people under, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The first time we looked at the verse, uh, this saying, her love, it came out, my beloved is mine, I am my beloved's. And that was in chapter 2 and verse 16. Now here in chapter 6 and verse 3, it says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. The order is now turned. She's now loving the shepherd young man before she loves herself. My, my, my beloved is mine and I am my beloved's in 2.16. She now says in, in chapter 6 and verse 3, I'm sorry, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. Chapter 7 and verse 10 is an incredible statement of her love where she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. I am my beloved's. I mean, I am for him. He can find his pleasure in me. He can find his love fulfilled in me. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. She's not even in it. She's not even in the equation. It's just all about him. So her love is turning. Now we can ask, how, how is this happening? 
this, before we do, let us look at the conclude how the story concludes. The story concludes when the Shulamite tells the king that her love is for another. She wants her marriage to be in purity and to save herself for just one, just only her husband, the shepherd. The love triangle is exposed and her view of it is made clear. Chapter 8, verses 5 to 7. Who is this that comes up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? Under the apple tree I awoke thee. There my mother was in travail with you. There was she in travail that brought you forth. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as hell. The flashes thereof are flashes of fire, a very flame of Jehovah. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, he would utterly be despised. Let us consider the meaning that these words have in the situation that's being depicted in this story. Solomon bringing her into the mix, uh, taking her away from the shepherd, trying to seduce her because of the wealth of the kingdom. And I say those words, and they even feel bad saying them. But with a man who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, I mean, that's the case. That, that's, you know, man isn't meant to live that way. He's meant to live one wife, one man, one husband, the two make one flesh. It's clear, just right from Genesis 1 and 2, what man had intended. And that is not the way Solomon lived. And here is this woman being drawn out who just, her love isn't there. The shepherd left the Shulamite because there was only room for one love of a woman. That's why he, he goes out and, and leaves her, and she seeks him several occasions in the story. She desires the shepherd. Gold is no substitute for the love of a man, for a woman, and a woman for a man. And that's clear in what she s- says in, in this statement in verses 5 through 7, uh, where she says, uh, I awoke. Your mother was in travail with you. There was She was in travail who brought you forth. And then she says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as hell. And undoubtedly, the shepherd would have felt that jealousy, seeing that she was in the king's palace and trying to woo her for his own. But in the end, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, he would utterly be despised. So in turning his back on love, rather going after things. Love not the world, nor the things of the world. He who loves the world does not have the love of the Father, the Apostles John said. And so it is in this picture, a man who does such things, and we are a culture of such things. We are a culture of such people who we look at ourselves as very 
you know, sacrificial. We look at ourselves as men who, and women who are devoted to our careers and responsible in our workplace and who neglect love. The Bible is not teaching to be irresponsible in anything. But there is a strong line between the importance of love in a relationship, first with God and then with one another, and things and even responsibilities. Man is to love people and to use things. He's to be responsible at work, of course, but not at the expense of what's most important. And if what was most important were true throughout all the world, now well, we wouldn't have to worry about fighting with one another and wars and security and uh, dozens of things that just take our mind away because there is little to no love in the world. So what are the applications from the Song of Songs? Well, firstly, I want us to think about loving the whole person is better than physical attraction. The attraction of Solomon and the attraction he tried to draw out from the Shulamite, and I just skated over it. You can take time and try to understand who's doing the speaking when. It's not an easy task, but the, the, the application that comes strongly through is loving the whole person is better than physical attraction. Secondly, the allurements of the world should produce a longing after God. You know, in the end, God's way is, is best, and, and it's best when God is in view. So the, the love that is meant between a man and a woman and no other, that becomes paramount in this Song of Songs. And no doubt for the person who is a child of God, who loves God, who wants to put him first, submit to his will, uh, then the whole idea of marriage and one man, one woman be, takes on even stronger meaning. Thirdly, God jealously desires the whole heart of those who belong to him. I mean, in the picture of marriage, according to Ephesians chapter 5, it, it, it's a union as the church is the bride of Christ. And Christ seeks to be in union with his bride. He gave his life for her. He died for her. He redeemed her through sacrifice upon the cross in order to be in union with her, loving union throughout all eternity. So God jealously desires the whole heart, and for that he gave us everything to make that possible because out of appreciation and love for being saved from his own just and righteous anger, we are brought into a relationship as the bride of Christ. So here in this picture, depicted in a real story between men and women, there's the shepherd who leaves and continually uh, because he, he, he understands that her heart is being torn between two. That's why God begins the Ten Commandments by saying, I am the Lord thy God who called you out of the house of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God is so there's only one God, and that's the God of Israel, the creator God, the God, the redeeming God. There is no other. Fourth application is the chamber room or divine siege. When I read in verse 4, draw me after you, let us run together. The Shulamite is saying to the uh, shepherd, the king has brought me into his chambers. The primary root of the word that's used there, which is inner room, inner sanctuary, 
uh, the primary root word is properly to enclose as a room, i.e. by anal analogy, 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 I'm sorry, to be set as in a siege, enter a privy chamber, to be set, put in a siege. Now, that's what happens to the Shulamite. I mean, she is besieged by the king. And there is this kind of like a wine press where you squeeze the grapes and the, the dregs stay at the bottom and you get the juice. So, or, or in a sift where the Lord looked at Peter and he said, you know, Satan would have you to sift you like wheat. Uh, but when you turn, when, but when you repent, when you turn again, comfort your brethren. I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail, our Lord said to him. And so it is in this setting, in this situation, that there's a sifting. And in the sifting, you know, the tares are, are lost and all that's left is the wheat, just as the juice and the dregs. So it is in life. There's this besieging on both the part of the devil and God who jealously desires us. And in, 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 it seems a hard thing to be in a spiritual war. And it is a hard thing, just like in physical war. Uh, but in the end, God's design is for our, our highest good. And the highest good is that our heart be wholly devoted to him. Sanctification is the process of sifting out the world and replacing it with Christ. And that's the meaning of the Song of Solomon. This is the love song of Solomon. In a way, it is a love song from his own heart in sharing his own losses, so to speak, his, his, his guilt over the life that he led, over the idols that he loved, and he, he died really kind of a, a poor man in spirit and lost because of this. I don't know all the details of the, the timing. I know how the narrative ends, and it ends, it ends poorly. I know in Ecclesiastes, in the Song of Solomon, there's this appearance of repentance and certainly an acknowledgement of what he had done and how he had lived. I suppose that one of the most noble things that Solomon did in his lifetime was in the writing of this, in this letter, this song. Because in it, he, he opens up himself, his shortcomings, his weaknesses, his sin, and tells a story that really is a warning to all who would follow after him, who would have wisdom given to them and then would not even come close in some ways to living up to that wisdom. The Apostle Paul, when writing his second letter, third letter really, to the, to the Corinthians, uh, he said, Therefore, we also have as our ambition in chapter 5 and verse 9, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, that is Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good, and in the Greek, or empty. Sin is, was carried away on the cross. Those sins were carried on the Lamb of God for those who uh, are given the gift of repentance and faith, who put their trust in Him, who acknowledge, which is the greatest thing any man can do, 
uh, and can't do in the in the f- efforts of the flesh to acknowledge that they are sinful and trust in the lordship of Christ, which means they give their life to Christ completely. Motives, attitude, everything belongs to Christ and him completely, which is crazy to think that a, a sinner as we are before Almighty God could do such a thing without his aid. You know, that portion of Scripture where Jesus says, you know, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. So this is people who know how to give good gifts, and Jesus in that context calls them evil. You know, we we can't white out those portions of Scripture, and there are so many, that depict the heart of mankind as evil. It's all right to do so. It's let pride get out of the way and realize who we are. And we are what God says we are, not what we think we are. And I think to some degree that's where Solomon got at the end of his life, realizing uh, the emptiness of following after the flesh. And how did he get there? And the scripture again tells us you know, that knowledge puffs up. In the Greek it says, Knowledge inflates. It it inflates the mind to a degree that's far beyond that of the heart. And that's where the discrepancy comes in. That's where the disparity comes in. That's where this gulf comes in between what we know in our head, which puffs us up in pride. And pride, according to James, the Bible makes it clear that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So I guess at some point at the end of Solomon's life, he humbled himself and God met him in that humility and he, he gave grace and he enabled him to write the book of Ecclesiastes and the, and the Song of Solomon where he says, look, it's just not worth it to be full of yourself, to be full of wisdom. And we have so much today in the way of the ability to gain knowledge and books and learning and it's gone on and learning can be a wonderful thing. With humility. Knowledge can be a horrendous thing when it's accompanied with pride. And so this message goes out at the end of it to all those men who've dedicated their lives to Christ, who've given themselves to love Christ, to serve Christ, to serve the church. If you're getting close to a place where you're being filled with pride, know this that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. You know that if you're a leader. You know that in the Word of God. You know that I'm not speaking for myself but from God. And so let us all be warned that it is not healthy to combine wisdom with pride. And so I bring this message to a conclusion, this lesson, this teaching on the Song of Solomon. I hope you're blessed by it. I hope you'll tell others about it. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and that God will continue to bless you in the hearing of his word. With these things I say, amen.